Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to um, John chapter 14. We've been teaching a series for the last several weeks on uh, the name of Jesus, and uh, I'm not through with it yet. Don't know exactly how long I'll go, but, uh, um, but there are some things that the Lord keeps dealing with my heart about, and so I'll go till they get out, I guess. John chapter 14, Jesus speaking to his disciples uh, I, I'm, forgive me for saying this. I, I say this almost every time that we turn to these scriptures, but I, I feel like it's important for those perhaps that have not heard before, or if you have heard, sometimes you don't get it the first time you hear it. Um, John wrote this, uh, this letter, what we know of as the gospel of John much later than any of the other new Testament writings with the exception of the book of revelation. He wrote revelation and his gospel pretty much about the same time. And uh, the, the time that it was written, the time that they were written, were about 60-some-odd years, 60 to 65 years after Jesus was risen from the dead. And so these are the, the final words. These are the, the, um, uh, the, four gosp- the three other Gospels are well-known. The letters that Paul wrote to the church are well-known. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed in 70 A.D., these, uh, these, uh, the Gospel of John was written somewhere 90 to 92 to 95 uh, A.D. So the temple has been gone for 20 years. And, um, and, and so Judaism, you might notice in reading John's letters to the church, uh, Judaism is, is not as prominent a thing in his letters as they were in Paul's because the temple has been destroyed. Everybody understands that it's a different day. There is no high priest in place anymore at the time that John writes these things. And so... Uh, that begs the question in my mind, why did John write them? If the three other Gospels are there, and they give us a full account of Jesus' life and his ministry, why did John write to add to it? I have to conclude, you judge it for yourself, but I have to conclude that John saw that there were things missing that he considered to be important for the church to know. The Holy Spirit must have inspired him to do it because um, uh, we know that that's the case with the Scriptures. And so this seems to be the final notes, if you will, and as such, John's gospel gives us information that none of the others do. Uh, there's very little overlap, a little bit, but not a lot of overlap between what the other gospel writers wrote and what John wrote. He fills in the blanks for us. And I don't know if I'm saying that the right way. I, I, I don't know of a better way to say it, but I'm, I'm trying to convey the, uh, the importance of the book of John as, as the, the, the last information, perhaps, before, uh, before the, the, the John, who is the last apostle, goes off the scene. And uh, the church is left with just the writings of the apostle rather than an eyewitness account. As such, John gives us more information about the night that Jesus was betrayed at the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, than anybody else. And that information has to do with Jesus telling us about the power of his name and the use of his name. None of the other gospel writers give us this detail. So Jesus is trying to explain to the disciples. Another thing that we get from John's gospel is that we would like to think from a natural standpoint, I guess, it's... it's uh, um, kind of gives us warm, fuzzy feelings to think that the apostles, the disciples, when they were here with Jesus on the earth, understood who Jesus was and what his mission was and so forth. And John tells us that wasn't the case. Because the last night that Jesus was with them, Jesus is trying to convince them not only that he was sent from the Father, but he's going back to the Father. Now, I would think, looking from my perspective, uh, that, that that would be something the disciples had settled on early on and so they would know and all this kind of stuff. But Jesus taught them plainly that he was going to Jerusalem, going to be killed and raised again the third day. And then when he did, uh, when he was raised from the dead, he upbraided them for the hardness of heart, their refusal to believe what he had told them. So apparently everything wasn't the way that we would like to think that it was. 
they were still unconvinced. Putting yourself in their situation, maybe it's easier to understand. How would you accept the fact that Jesus is telling them he's going to be raised from the dead in three days? You've never seen anything like that outside of Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus being raised from the dead. You've never seen anything like that. You've never witnessed anything like that. That kind of goes against your doctrine, your Judaic doctrine. How would you know? Well, apparently they didn't. And so Jesus, on the last night that he's with them, is trying to convince them that he's in the Father. The Father is in him. The Father sent him, and he's returning back to the Father. Notice in verse, uh, verse 12, he says about returning to the Father. John 14, verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, anytime verily, verily is used, especially by Jesus, verily, verily means truly, truly. In other words, he's trying to emphasize the point. This is the truth that I'm telling you. It may be hard for you to accept. You may not understand it, but this is the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever, here's how we're going to do the works, and whatsoever you shall ask, the word ask does not mean to, to, to beg or to, to request, it means to call for or demand or require. He says, whatsoever you call for or demand in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you call for or require anything, verse 14 says, in my name, I will do it. So Jesus, in, uh, uh, without going into a lot of detail, Jesus in trying to convince and encourage the uh, disciples to believe. Judas has already gone out of the room, so it's the, the 11 that are with him. He's trying to convince his 11 disciples who have seen miracle after miracle after miracle. Sign and wonder after sign and wonder after sign and wonder. They've seen things that they would not have believed it had somebody told them, but they've witnessed it for three years, the better part of three years. Now Jesus says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake, verse 11 says. And then he said, and here's what will happen in those and with those and among those who believe in me. The works that I do shall you do also and greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my father and whatsoever you call for or require in my name that's what I'll do if you require anything in my name I will do it that the father may be glorified in the son what's the message of Jesus on the last night of his time here on the earth with the disciples use my name look with me over to uh, chapter 15 he talks about the Holy Ghost coming to help us Chapter 15, verse 7, he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, we could summarize that or or say it a different way by saying, if you are saved and walking in fellowship with me and walking by faith, abiding in me is is, uh, relationship, the words abiding you is walking by faith and not by sight. In other words, living by the word. So he said, if you're saved and walking by faith, maintaining fellowship with me by walking by faith in my word. Notice what the result is. You shall ask what you will. This word ask is the same word that we saw over in chapter 14. Call for, require, demand. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask or call for or require in my name, demand in my name, whatever you will, what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, so much of the church world spends their time saying, well, God answers prayer if it's according to his will. Well, how are we supposed to know? That's the only way you can know. God's word is his will. But so much of the church just prays and says, Lord, if it be your will, and then waits to see what the results are. Well, that's the textbook definition of unbelief. 
Because faith begins where the will of God is known. If you don't know what the will of God is, you can't have faith for it. And if you can't have faith for it, you can't receive it. The Bible says, let not that man, the man that wavers, the man that's in unbelief, think that he'll receive anything from the Lord. So the church has put itself in a catch-22 situation. We don't know what the will of God is, they say. So we're going to have to pray and just see whatever happens. And then we accept whatever happens to be the will of God. Well, that's the prayer of unbelief that always fails to receive. That's not what Jesus is telling us. He said, if we abide in him and his word abides in us. If his word abides in in you, then that means you're going to know what his will is. You know, there's a lot of things that if you just take what the word says, you don't have to pray about them. The word will answer so many of the questions that the church world has. Are you out there? So if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Whatever you demand. Whatever you demand. Now again, whenever I use that word demand, I'm I'm conscious of the fact that some people have resistance to it. Because it sounds like that we're doing something with a bad attitude or arrogance or or something like that. And and, And we've been accused of that. But demand is a legal term. This word call for, require, demand, it's a legal term. It's the same thing, same relationship as you have with your bank when you demand, put a demand on your checking account by writing a check. You don't have to have a bad attitude to write a check. Your attitude or arrogance or humility or whatever else that you want to label it has nothing to do with the demands you're placing on the bank. The bank doesn't look at your check and say, I wonder what they were thinking when they wrote this. I wonder if they're happy about this. Or are they being arrogant when they write this check? It's a legal, legal relationship. You present the check, or the person you give the check to presents the check to your bank, and your bank honors it because of the contract that you have with the bank. Jesus is saying, my name is a contractual relationship with you because you're in me. Boy, if we could ever get at that. If we could ever come to that understanding and our eyes be open to that, that would change not only us, but the world around us. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Notice he says in verse 8, herein is my father glorified. Notice what gives God glory. You getting successful and effective results in prayer using the name of Jesus and using his word. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. I don't know if you know this or not, folks, but the Bible says one of the ways that the, church, that the world will be able to recognize the church is that we get stuff answered in prayer. Our prayers are answered. Notice in verse 16, he said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Now, I wonder what fruit he's talking about. Is he talking about a different fruit than he was talking about in verses 7 and 8? Has he changed subjects? Not at all. He's saying, I've chosen you and I've ordained you that you you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, demand of the Father in my name, he will give it you. So now we know that he's talking about asking in verse 7 or calling for, requiring, or demanding in his name because that's how you produce fruit. That's how you produce lasting fruit. Notice verse uh, chapter 16. John chapter 16. 
Verse 23. Jesus said, and in that day, talking about the day of the resurrection. And in that day, you shall ask me nothing. Now, this is a different word, ask. This is the word for request. Literally, he's saying, in that day, the day of the church, the day following the resurrection, you won't be asking me for anything. You won't be making your requests of me. Up to that point in time, they had requested everything that they did have a request for directly from him. They didn't pray to the Father. The one time that they said Jesus teaches to pray, it was their idea, not his. Jesus taught them, Father, uh, our Father which art in heaven, what we know of is the Lord's Prayer. It wasn't the Lord's Prayer. It was the disciples' prayer. But nowhere in that prayer is the name of Jesus. So we know it's not a New Testament prayer. Now, you can adapt it. You can add the name of Jesus to it and, and adapt certain things that are different now than they were when Jesus gave them that prayer and make it work for today. But what's called the Lord's Prayer and what so many Christians pray as a ritual exercise is not even a New Testament prayer. Because Jesus said, and in that day you'll ask me nothing. But whatever you ask the Father in my name. Whatever you shall ask. This is a different word, ask. Call for a required demand. Same word that we saw in John 14 and 15. Whatsoever you shall call for a required demand of the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto, meaning up till now, have you asked, demanded nothing in my name. Ask, call for a required demand. And you shall receive that your joy may be full. Now, folks, let's put all religiosity aside. I want you just to imagine. Just give me three seconds. And imagine your joy being full in every area of life. That got a couple of smiles that I haven't seen yet this morning. Imagine everything that you need answered. Everything that you have any desire for, godly desire for, met. Your joy being full. Nothing, looking at your life top to bottom. Start to finish, looking at your life and saying, there's not one thing I need, not one thing I'd change. That's what full joy means. That's what it means, that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying, your relationship with the Father in my name and the use of my name can bring you to the place where your joy may be full. That's why the disciples are so bent out of shape about Jesus saying he's going away. Because up to this point, everything they've had any need of, everything they've run into trouble about, every situation that, uh, that has arisen, Jesus has been there with the power of God to overcome it, move it, fix it, something. And now he says, I'm going away. That's what they were sorrowful about. That's what they were bent out of shape over. They're thinking, well, wait a minute. This ideal of life that everybody would hope for that we've lived for the last three years is about to go away. Jesus is telling them, no, it's not going to go away. It's going to be better than it ever was. Because now you don't have to ask me. You ask the Father in my name and he'll give it to you. Now you can pray directly to the Father because he loves you just like he loved me. Now, I've got a question to pose to you folks. And that is, does the name of Jesus hold the place in the modern day church that it's supposed to? Well, that was easy. It's obvious that the results that Jesus said we would get from his name are not the results that, that uh, identify the modern-day church, are they? What does that mean then? Has the, it means only one of two things. Is it could poss- oh, there's only two possibilities. Either the name of Jesus has changed or we're not doing with the name what we're supposed to. 
Which one is it? Turn back with me to, uh, uh, to Mark chapter 16. Let's see some things that Jesus said about his name and the use of his name. And, and specifically, there's one area that I want to talk to you about, and I need to get to it pretty quick, I guess. One area specifically about the use of his name that I want to speak to you about this morning. This is, uh, let's start in verse 14. Um, this is after Jesus re- appears to the disciples uh, the first time uh, after his resurrection. It says, afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with uh, their unbelief and hardness of heart because they, uh, excuse me, I've got a sneeze trying to come. They upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Others had seen him, but they hadn't yet, and they didn't believe. And yet Jesus had told them, clearly I'm going to be raised again the third day. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world. Now, he, uh, he doesn't give as much detail as some of the other gospel writers do. But here's the summarization of what Jesus gave the disciples instructions to do. Verse 15, Jesus said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Now he's not talking about. He doesn't say these signs shall follow those that have special faith regarding the name of Jesus. He doesn't say these signs will follow those that are specially called of God to a ministry office. He said these signs should follow everybody that accepts me as their Lord and Savior. He's not giving the apostles special power. He's saying here's what belongs to the believers in the name of Jesus. Here's what belongs to every child of God because of the power that's in my name. He's not identifying them or singling them out as something special or something unique. He's saying these signs shall follow. Another translation says these signs shall accompany, travel with you, the believing ones. What believing ones? He doesn't say the apostles. He says the believing ones. I think so often what we've done is we've tried to identify the fact that the um, the signs that Jesus said would accompany his name or accompany the believers are not accompanying the modern day church. And so we've tried to make uh, some kind of special class of special faith or special call of God or special anointing or, or some, some, some kind of special thing to try to explain away why we're not seeing the results. And the results are very simply not taking place in the church because we don't have either knowledge in what we have or confidence that it'll work. But Jesus is not making this hard. He's making it as simple as he can. These signs will follow the ones that believe in my name. Now, if you're saved, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you are a believer in the name of Jesus. Well, if that ever sunk in. You are already a believer in the name of Jesus if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. If you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, here's what Jesus is saying. This power should follow you wherever you go. Not some special prayer to make it work. Not some special call of God to get something to happen. Not some special power or special faith or anything else special. What's special is that you're in Christ. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Everyone that believes in his name should have these signs following. Now, that's what Jesus said. Now, I know the church says differently. 
I know the religion says differently. So the religion says some of these signs passed away. But please notice that Jesus said that these signs would follow those that believe in his name. So unless his name is changed, these are the same signs that should follow believers now as they were intended to follow believers when Jesus said these words. Notice the first one he says. They shall cast out devils. They shall cast out devils. First thing Jesus mentioned that belongs to a believer in the name of Jesus is authority over the devil. Now he goes on to mention other things. They shall speak with new tongues. Apparently that Jesus didn't intend for that to pass away. They shall take up serpents, another reference to authority over the devil. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, a reference to divine protection. Finally, the last of the five on the list is they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. If you're reading from the King James, please notice the King James italicizes the word them. You know what that means? That means the translators added it. Well, if they added it, let's take it out to get what Jesus was saying. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with and confirming the word. See, he wasn't just working with them, he's working with the word. And God will always work with the word. See, if he's only working with them, then when them is gone, like so much of this modern day church says, when the last apostle died, all that power was done away with. But he's not working with them, he's working with the word. And the word doesn't change. The word's the same now as as when they had it then. As a matter of fact, we've got a more complete record of what belongs to us in Christ than they did. Because revelation is always progressive. We know more now than they knew then. Now, folks, notice in verse 14, he's just gotten on to them because they didn't believe. So you can't tell me that this was some special group of guys, that they had some special power in and of themselves or some special wisdom or knowledge because they'd walked with Jesus. They walked with him for three years and didn't believe. Yet we hold them, the modern day church, religion holds them up as, yeah, but they were apostles. Yeah, they were idiots that didn't believe. And God made apostles out of them. I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope. They didn't believe. But Jesus said, these signs will follow them that believe in my name. Why? Because you 11 are such special guys? No, because of the name. Because of the name. Because of the name. Turn with me over to to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, I want to remind you of something Jesus said while he was here on the earth in an event that uh, took place while he was here and the resulting authority of the devil that was exercised. Luke chapter 10, Jesus is telling the uh, 70, sending the 70 out two by two, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself would come. Then he gave them specific instructions. Notice uh, down in verse 8, he said, into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you. Notice it was dependent on the city's attitude toward them and not God's attitude toward the city. In other words, it's not according to the will of God that these things would take place. It's according to the willingness of the city to receive them. God's will is the same for every city. Some cities will receive, other cities will not. Jesus has experienced that in his own life. 
Mark chapter 6 says that he went into his own hometown of Nazareth. Filled with the power of God. But he could there in his own hometown of Nazareth do no mighty work. Mark 6, 5 says. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Well, why couldn't he do any mighty work? Why couldn't he get anybody crippled healed? Why couldn't he open any blind eyes? Why couldn't he have any signs and wonders and miracles in Nazareth? Because they refused to believe. Their choice, not his. He marveled because he was unable. doesn't say he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. He marveled because he was unable to do the work God sent him to do. Why? Because of their unbelief. So Jesus said, Into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things that are set before you, and, verse 9, heal the sick that are therein. Heal the sick that are therein. All it takes is them receiving you. All it takes is them accepting that I sent you. Just choosing to believe. Jesus, the one sent from God, sent us. And heal the sick that are therein. And say unto them, please notice what he says to say. What does he want them to know in connection with the healing power of God being displayed? And say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. So healing has got to be a part of the kingdom of God then. Because he gives specific instructions, heal the sick, show the healing power of God, and tell people that's part of the kingdom of God. It's come unto you. Now what dictates whether or not the kingdom of God is going to come unto them? Their willingness to receive. Because he goes further and he says, Enter whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you not. Verse 10. Go your ways out into the streets of the same city and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaves on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be you sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. In other words, he said, in whatsoever city you enter and they don't receive you, make sure to tell them the kingdom of God, the power of God was here to heal the sick here and do other great works here, but you wouldn't have it. Now look at the modern day church. Modern day church says, well, if God wanted me to be well, then he would just heal me. Well, if that's the case, if that's the way things work now, then things have changed. Because in Jesus' day, I know it was just Jesus, but in Jesus' day, the man who had the Spirit of God without measure, the man who delegated the power of God as God directed him to, that power only worked when people received him or the ones that he sent. But now, according to modern-day religion, it must be different. It only works when God wants it to work, and man has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, if you were the devil... Trying to trick the church. This would be the perfect strategy. Now of course I'm not saying that's what's happened. Because heaven forbid that the church could be at fault. It's got to be God. You know the one who never changes. The one in whom there is no variableness. Neither shadow of turning. It's got to be him. Right. I hope my sarcasm comes through. (laughs) No, I know you get it, but you never know what things are going to happen with on tape. Well, if things are the same now as they they were in Jesus' day, then it comes down to the willingness of the individual, the recipient, and his desire, his will, his determination, not God's. So it's not about just the will of God. It's about the will of the individual to receive. 
Now the 70 come back. Notice in verse 17. The 70 come back and they returned again with joy. Remember John 15? Ask that you may receive that your joy may be full. I guess that's John 16. Verse 23. Ask that you may receive that your joy may be full. They come back and their joy is full. Why? Notice what they said. What they identified their joy being full for. Because they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, I would submit to you, and you check it out for yourself. You look in all these verses up to this point in time, from verse 1 to verse 17, there's not been one word said about the devil in any form. Not one word said about casting out devils, demons, anything. No mention whatsoever. But they come back, and they said, Lord, we found out even devils are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, Jesus answering said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, folks, he's not saying Satan fell as soon as they used his name. He's saying Satan was cast out of heaven from the beginning or early on when he rebelled against God and God threw him out of heaven. Now, notice the, ident- the, uh, the example that he uses. I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Have you ever seen lightning strike? You know how it works? How that there's a flash in the sky and then this... This little beam of light comes slowly down to the earth. (laughs) Floats down like a feather and then finally just lands very softly. Have you ever had lightning strike close to where you were? If that didn't scare the jeebers out of you, then you weren't alive already. Lightning hits and it hits suddenly. That's how Satan fell from heaven, according to Jesus. We've got this idea that when Satan took a third of the angels and rebelled against God, there was this great war in heaven. Yeah, and it lasted for about three seconds. It lasted long enough for the devil to show up and God to cast him out of heaven like lightning. There was not some protracted war in heaven where God just barely eked out a victory because he he outnumbered the devil's forces. God and the devil are not in the same class. So Jesus is very simply saying, yeah, Satan has been defeated from the beginning. Before you ever showed up, Satan was cast out of heaven. I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. And then he said, behold, I give unto you power. This word power is literally the word authority. Two times the word power is used in verse uh, 18, verse 19, I'm sorry. One time, the first time it means authority, delegated ability. The second time it means power. In the sense that we know of as inherent ability. So the word dunamis. The second word is the word dunamis. Where we get our word dynamite. So he said behold I give unto you authority. To tread on serpents and scorpions. And over all the power or ability of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. In other words he's saying this. He's saying yeah Satan's been defeated. And so just like I gave you authority. To heal sickness and disease. Among the cities that would receive you. Authority over the devil in every area. Is part of the kingdom of God too. And then Jesus says something that used to really bug me. Then he said this. He said notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. In other words Jesus is saying. But don't make a big deal about having control over the devil's power. Don't make a big deal about evil spirits subject to you in my name. He didn't say to ignore it. He didn't say to discount it. He said don't make a big deal about it. He said but rather rejoice. Because your names are written in heaven. Why? Because if you just focus on the devil, you'll miss out on everything that belongs to the kingdom of God. All the other parts of the the power of God that belongs to the kingdom of God that belong to you too. 
In other words, he's saying rejoice because I've abolished the power of death start to finish. Not just power over the devil. Now, I would submit to you that the modern day church has forgotten that there's anything else except our names written in heaven. Have ignored the fact that there's power available to the believers in the name of Jesus. And signs that are intended to accompany us. And all they focus on is our names are written in heaven. Well, that's great. When we get to heaven, that'll really make a difference. What about now? Where the devil is. Folks, you're not, you're not going to need to exercise authority over the devil in heaven because he's not there. But he is here. He is here. Now, we've looked at the book of Acts and looked at some things that, uh, that the Bible said about the use of the name of Jesus. Look with me over to chapter 16 of Acts. Here's what may be the most well-known example of the use of the name of Jesus to break the devil's power. And I hope I don't leave the wrong impression by singling out this part of the, the power in the name of Jesus. Because so often people um, pigeonhole things. And they don't realize that Jesus, uh, according to what uh, Paul wrote by the Holy Ghost to Timothy, he said, Jesus abolished death. Now think about what that means. Jesus abolished death. To abolish means to destroy and remove. Now, that doesn't mean death, spiritual death doesn't exist. It still does exist, but not for you. And no consequence of spiritual death exists for you, for any believer in the name of Jesus. Because the believers in the name of Jesus are given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the keys that unlock the kingdom of God and the power of the name of Jesus that operates here on the earth. Paul finds himself at Philippi. Verse 16, it says, uh, Acts 16, verse 16, it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. Another translation says fortune telling. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. That tells about how they were beaten and cast in jail, thrown in jail and, and, uh, and so forth as a result of this. But notice certain things. Notice, first of all, that the name of Jesus had complete and, and, and utter power over the evil spirit that controlled this little girl. Now, remember, the rule of thumb is still the same as in Jesus' day, and that is somebody had to receive you. There's got to be some willingness on the part of the individual. Or else there has to be some special move of the Holy Ghost to overcome the willingness or the, the resistance of the individual. We see that a couple of times in Jesus' ministry. For example, in John chapter 5, when Jesus was at the pool of Bethesda, he asked the crippled man, wilt thou be made whole? And the guy gives him excuses for why he can't be well. But Jesus apparently was inspired or impressed of the Holy Ghost to use the power of God on his behalf and said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Well, if... Unbelief on the part of Nazareth kept the power of God from working. Why didn't this man's unbelief in John chapter 5 keep his from working? Keep the power of God and Jesus from working for him. The only explanation I've got for you, and, and the Bible doesn't say it, but you can see, uh, see a little bit of it, at least an indication or an implication by the way Jesus operates. And that is, there are some things that God initiates on his own just to show his goodness and his mercy. 
In other words, this man didn't say, I refuse to be healed. He just says, there's too many obstacles for me to get healed. So he's not unwilling to receive whatever uh, there is from Jesus. As a matter of fact, the implication is that he's looking to Jesus to be the man that throws him into the water. Well, Jesus did throw him into the water, just not the water he thought. So then what about this case? We don't see anything about this little girl, this damsel who's telling fortunes, except she's a little slave girl. That's all we know. We know she's possessed of the devil because Jesus, because, uh, oh, what's his name? Paul, Paul, because Paul cast the devil out of him. How was he able to do this? Notice it says that she did this. She cried after him saying, these men are the servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Notice the evil spirit in this little girl caused her to know who they were. Folks, I don't know if you know this or not, but the devil knows you. He knows what buttons to push on you. He knows what areas to work on to keep you from believing in, in the, the, the power that's already inherent within you as a believer. He knows what, what ways to work on you to keep you in the dark. Because that's the only work he's got. That's the, only, that's the only attack he's got is deception. If he doesn't keep you in the dark about who you are and what belongs to you, he's toast. So he works overtime through circumstances and thoughts and, and, and whatever he has at his disposal to keep you in the dark about who you are and what power you have in the name of Jesus. Paul wasn't in the dark. And so the evil spirit that told fortunes, that predicted the future in many cases, recognized who this guy was. She picked up on it. This is not the evil spirit that's telling everybody about the way of salvation. This is the girl, the young girl saying, I know who you are. That evil spirit in me that causes me to know things to come has shown me who you are. So she's crying out. These men are the servants of the most high God that show unto us the way of salvation. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would she say that? If she's willingly given herself over to the devil working in connection with and, and collusion with the devil's agenda, would she want anybody to know what these guys were doing? Would you? The devil sure wouldn't want anybody to know why they're in town. These men are servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. You think that's information the devil would want to give out? Of course not. So what is she doing? She's showing that she's willing to make known who these guys are. Whether she has any hope for her own salvation or not, we don't know. But apparently something after many days, however many, many is, after many days, Paul was grieved. I take that to mean he was moved on by the Holy Spirit, turned around and cast the devil out of this little girl. I believe, you judge it for yourself, but I believe that her saying after many days or for many days, these men are the servants of the Most High God, was an expression of her desire in some form to be free from this power that held her bound. So Paul cast the devil out of her and gets in big trouble for it. Big, big trouble for it. These guys realize, wait a minute, she's not the same girl. Notice they instantly recognized, instantly recognized that she doesn't have the power to tell fortunes anymore. Well, that upset their cash flow. That affected them financially in an adverse manner. 
So they bring accusation against Paul and, and uh, Silas. Have them thrown in jail. Have them beaten. But then a miracle takes place overnight. Now I want you to turn with me over to Acts chapter 19. Here's another example of the use of the name of Jesus over the power of the devil. Tells about how Paul gets certain people saved. There were 12 men. They got saved down by the riverside. Um, Let's start in verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separating the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. The, uh, by the way, uh, church history tells us that the school of Tyrannus was a medical school that was right next to the synagogue. And this continued, verse 10, by the space of two years, so that all they that, w- that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now let me ask you a question. How were those wonders done? How were those special wonders, special miracles done by the hands of Paul, if not through the name of Jesus? Do you know any other source of miracle working power than the name of Jesus? So if God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that sicknesses departed from people and evil spirits go out of them by the contact of cloths or aprons, handkerchiefs or aprons, then we have to conclude that those handkerchiefs or aprons were prayed over, ministered to in some manner in the name of Jesus because it carried the power that's in the name of Jesus. There's no other way it could happen. People aren't healed by putting clothes on. Are they? People aren't healed by carrying handkerchiefs. If that were all there was to it, the handkerchief business would be booming. Now, there's something special about them. Well, what was special about them? They were prayed over in the name of Jesus. They were touched. They were ministered to. There was a contact with those handkerchiefs and aprons with Paul in some manner or another. And then when they were taken to the sick, the sick were healed and evil spirits went out of people. Now, you tell me how this happened. Did Paul lay hands on a pile of cloths and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for these cloths in the name of Jesus, and sick people are going to get healed by them. And anybody that has an evil spirit, that evil spirit's going to go out. How would he know that? What evidence would he have that that would be the case if that was the way he operated? Folks, it wasn't. They found this out because they took stuff from Paul. Paul was a tent maker. Church history tradition tells us that these were aprons that Paul would wear during the day and sweat in. And that these handkerchiefs and aprons were taken to the sick. It was discovered that when they were touched, when sick people touched them, the sick people got healed. When people that were demonized touched them, the evil spirits went out of them. And so that's when people started bringing stuff to Paul to touch Paul would wipe his face on them or whatever the case was and take them back to the sick people. In other words, it wasn't just contact of his hands, at least not initially. It was the sweat, the byproduct of him because he's in Christ that was taken to somebody else. His life force, which is the name of Jesus, set other people free. Now, that's what church history and tradition tells us. You decide for yourself. 
But I just don't believe Paul just came up with the idea one day, hey, we're going to gather all the handkerchiefs up and, and pray for them in a big pile, like we sometimes see people do today. Now, I want to, the, the more important point is that it had to be in the name of Jesus because of the next story that it tells us about. Verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, vagabond means gypsies, means roving Jews, people that don't have a home. Here's what church hoppers look like. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, let's don't go any further in the story for just a moment. I want to ask you a question. If the name of Jesus isn't producing results, if the name of Jesus is not what's producing the results of the special wonders and miracles by the hands of Paul, why are they using the name of Jesus? We see from the story the only purpose that they had in using the name of Jesus is to make a name for themselves. That didn't turn out too well, but that had to be the reason they did. What I want you to see is very simply this, folks. The name of Jesus was so prominent in Paul's ministry while he was here in Ephesus that even unsaved people are using it, trying to get the same results. So they began to say over people, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so, which means there were a lot of other people that did it. They just going to tell us about one group. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Why, does he, why do the evil spirits know Jesus? Because he defeated them. Why do they know Paul? Because he's in Christ. Why do they not know these seven sons of Siva? Because they're not in Christ. And it doesn't belong to them. The evil spirit would have no right to answer and say, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? If they were in Christ too. If they were believers in the name of Jesus. No right whatsoever. They might say, well, this is your first time to use that name. They wouldn't say they wouldn't know, that they didn't know him. And so the evil spirit said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, seven of them, and overcame them, seven of them, and prevailed against them, seven of them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks. Also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear followed on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Notice the end result. They get a reputation for getting beat up by an evil spirit and a man. And the name of the Lord Jesus is magnified. Now, why would the name of the Lord Jesus be magnified by these seven guys getting beat up and running down the street naked and wounded? The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified because it was made known that the signs followed the believing ones. And not just anybody that says the magic words. Not just anybody that says those magic words. Now, I want you to turn back with me and I'll close with this. Turn back with me to... um, Matthew chapter 16. I said all of this to get to this point. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, you'll remember the story when we get there. Jesus asked his disciples, 
Who do men say that I am? Now, the place Jesus was at was significant because he's in Caesarea Philippi. The ruins of the place is still there today. And it was a place where they had all, it was a, a, a grotto or a grove. Or a, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm using the right terminology, but there was a collection of all different kinds of shrines set up to different gods, false gods. We've been there a couple of times when we've been to Israel ourselves. And it, it's, there are renderings about what it used to look like, and there are ruins where you can still see the, the place that was carved into the side of the mountain where there were statues and idols and different stuff like that. And people would bring sacrifices to their favorite god and, um, uh, and, and offer those sacrifices there and, and try to curry favor from the god, whatever they thought they were going to get from it, I don't know. But uh, anyway, Jesus is at this place and he's watching everybody sacrificing to all these false gods and idols. And so Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? In other words, how do I rate compared to all these false gods that people are sacrificing to? And they said, this is verse 14, and they said, some say that you're John the Baptist. He's dead, by the way. So they would be having, they'd be talking about reincarnation or Elijah, same thing, or others, Jeremiah and one of the prophets. So it's easier for them to believe in reincarnation than it is to believe in what Jesus said about himself. Then Jesus asked them the question that really matters. He said, but who do you say that I am? Okay, now we know what everybody else thinks. Who do you say I am? Then Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, what rock is he talking about? He can't be talking about Peter. Some people make a big deal about the play on words. Your name is Peter, which means little rock. Um, it goes smaller than that. The name Peter means shifting sand. It means it's a sign of instability. Instability. So that wouldn't be the rock that he builds on. What rock is he talking about? He's talking about the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, the knowledge that I am the Christ, the Son of God, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Folks, I want you to understand he's talking about Satan's kingdom. And Satan's kingdom is made up of gates. We usually think of the devil coming after us and him being on the attack. But the reality is the church is pressing forward against the gates of hell to take back territory that he's... Un, that he's um, the rebel holder of gates are not a real good weapon you need to quit looking at the devil being on the offense and realize that what jesus is about to say puts you on the offense and not him upon this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and i will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven the keys of the kingdom of heaven and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does he mean, the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, he's got to be talking about the same thing that we looked at over in Luke chapter 10, where healing is a part of the kingdom of God. And casting out devils is a part of the kingdom of God. He can't be just talking about heaven being the place where God lives. Because if all he's talking about is the keys of heaven being the place where God lives, what are you going to need keys for in heaven? Now, if he's talking about keys to heavenly power, that's fine. I'm okay with that because that's part of the kingdom of God. That's the healing power of God. That's the delivering power of God. That's the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. So notice he says, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to remind you of something. I hope you know well enough to, to know without looking, but if you need to look, that's fine too. Over in Acts chapter 4, when Peter is called before 
the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the same group that had Jesus crucified just a couple of months before. They're called in question about the use of the name of Jesus that healed the crippled man in, at the beautiful gate of the temple in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 4, Peter said in verse 12, he said, Neither is there any other name given unto heaven, given unto men, whereby men must be saved. He's talking about the name of Jesus. In other words, he's saying, inspired by the Holy Ghost to answer the Sanhedrin, Peter is saying the name of Jesus is the foundation of the church. Any argument with that? He's saying there's no other name given unto men whereby men must be saved, whereby we must be saved. In other words, the name of Jesus is the foundation of the church. Now, they're asking him about healing power. And he talks about salvation. So Peter, inspired by the Holy Ghost, equates healing with salvation. And he says the foundation for the church, the foundation for salvation, the foundation for healing, the foundation for deliverance, the foundation for rescue, the foundation for peace, the foundation for forgiveness of sins is all the same thing. It's the name of Jesus. It's the only name given unto men whereby we must be saved. Therefore, if Jesus is saying upon this rock, the knowledge that he's the son of God, we could interchange those two terms, substitute those two terms and say, this is the foundation. This is the rock. The name of Jesus is the rock that I will build my church on. We haven't changed the meaning one bit, have we? Because they both mean the same thing. Jesus equals his name and his name equals the man. So if Jesus is the foundation for the church, then the name of Jesus is the foundation for the church. So he says, I say unto you again, verse 18, thou art Peter and upon this rock, Jesus and his name, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One translation says the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. I like that. The name of Jesus breaks through the gates of hell. Now, what are the gates of hell? This has a literal and a spiritual meaning and application. There is a literal meaning because one of these places, the biggest part of this, uh, this, the ruins of Caesarea Philippi, is a, 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 a big cave that's got a deep pit at the bottom of it that's filled with water. And they used to uh, uh, sacrifice to one of the false gods there, and they would throw in human sacrifices and those sacrifices would go into the water. And this water at one time was a fountain and, uh, and, and it was real turbulent and all this kind of stuff. If the person survived, they would be cast down and the water would pull them way down under the water and keep them down under there for sometimes several minutes at a time. Most of the time, several minutes at a time. And if the person came up and survived, then they knew that that was their, their sacrifice that was accepted for all the people. But as you would imagine, most people would drown in that period of time. And so they were left to offer another sacrifice when the next full moon came around. So basically, you can never satisfy this false god. That place where they were cast into the pit and into the water was called the gates of hell. So when Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he means literally none of this idol worship shall hold out against it. But he means also spiritually that Satan's kingdom shall not be able to hold out against the use of the name of Jesus. Now, folks, we're saying a lot of things that are, that are um, well, I don't want to say this. I, I keep saying the same thing. I wish I could find a different way to say it. If this ever dawned on us, that there's nothing that Satan's got that can overpower or, or hold out against the use of the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus would take on a whole different meaning for us. 
Imagine what the church could do in this world. I don't care how evil it is. I don't care how bad it's getting. Imagine what this church could do in this world if we recognized and understood and really accepted that there's no power that Satan has that's greater than the name of Jesus when we use it. That's what the church is supposed to do in the world. What we are doing might be a different matter. So he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, against the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God or the use of his name. That's why I want to substitute that, that phrase, the use of his name, because so many times people think, well, yeah, Satan can't do anything about Jesus being the Son of God. But that's not the point. The point is Satan can't do anything against you when you use his name. Verse 19, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Notice what those keys are going to do. First thing he makes mention of is the keys affecting his authority. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, he says the use of that name gives you the power to refuse to allow or to allow whatever you choose. It doesn't sound like Jesus is overseeing the use of his name in the way that it's being used, only in the results that come when it is used. In other words, Jesus isn't sitting in heaven saying, well, you can't use my name over there. Don't try to use it over there. But use it over there. No, Jesus is saying whatever you refuse, prohibit, bind on earth means to prohibit. It means to refuse to allow. Whatever you refuse to allow here on the earth, I'll back you up in heaven. But whatever you allow on the earth, I'll allow in heaven too. Now, he can't be talking about the will of God in action. You can't bind the will of God. You can fail to receive it. You can fail to take hold of what God has for you, but you can't bind the will of God from being done. So when he's talking about refusing to allow or allowing, he's talking about the work of the enemy or something contrary to the will of God. He's saying, whatever you use the name of Jesus for, I'll back you up in heaven. You choose to use it on the earth. Notice that always, every time that this phrase is used, this uh, example is used, it always initiates first from earth. Whatever you refuse to allow here on the earth, I'll back you up in heaven. Whatever you allow, whatever you're willing to put up with, having to go along with that too. Because you're the one that's been given the name of Jesus. Now, when we talk about the, the use of the name of Jesus, so often, and, and really if you look at the Bible examples, you won't find the, the, uh, uh, the only time you find people that are what we call demon-possessed. And, and by the way, the, the Bible does not use the word possessed. I know King James does, but the Bible does not use the word possessed. It's always the same word, and it literally means demonized. When it talks about a person being demonized, it could be demonized on a small level or a great level. In order for somebody to be fully possessed, that would mean they would have taken over spirit, soul, and body. But if we go back to that example in Acts chapter 19 where the little girl, the fortune-telling little girl that was possessed of the devil, King James says, her will was still in place. Her will was still intact. Her will was still operational. Now, that does not mean that she had complete control of her will in every aspect, but her will was still able to, to identify who these men were, who Paul and Silas were, and tell about their mission from God. If she had been taken over by the devil totally and completely without any exercise of her will whatsoever, she wouldn't have said what she said. You can see that, can't you? So if a person is possessed, and the question comes up from time to time, can a Christian be possessed? Well, possessed really means taken over spirit, soul, and body. If a Christian 
in order to be a Christian, your spirit has to be born again and belongs to God. So a, a, a Christian spirit cannot be taken over. So, of course, it would be impossible for a Christian to be possessed. But can a Christian be demonized? Yeah, sure. And the examples that you see in Scripture about people being demonized, we have a lot more um, extreme cases that are identified in, in uh, uh, Luke chapter 5, for example, the madman of Gadara. He's a man that's living out in the tombs. You've got uh, other examples of where people are, are uh, 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 well, I don't know how to, how to say it other than, than uh, demonized in an extreme way. We would have to go down to the slums or third world countries to find the equivalent of that. Because even in Paul's case, the only times that you see a situation like in Acts chapter 19 was a place where, the, like in Ephesus, where it was a, a, a headquarters for the worship of false gods. Paul, in, in his defense, in, in um, uh, Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, said, I suppose in seeing all these uh, idols and the temples you've got set up to different places, different gods and different, uh, different idols, he said, I reckon that you are, or I uh, conclude that you are very superstitious. One translation says. So unless you find somewhere where the, that uh, uh, the society is given over to superstition, which some of, you is some of what you have in, in uh, uh, some of the African nations and, and that kind of stuff, as a result, the devil seems to have a much greater um, leeway to operate in possession than what we're used to here. That's not to say that we won't see possession here. But what we see in our society to a greater degree, outside of mental illness and things like that, are people, Christians and non-Christians, that give themselves over to the desires of the flesh. And over time, an evil spirit will come through that open door and take a greater hold. Some drug uh, addiction is the, is the operation of the devil. Some sexual addiction, pornography and so forth, can open the door. Christian or non-Christian can open the door to, to an evil spirit coming in, an unclean spirit coming in and, and, and taking a greater hold. Can they ever take over the spirits of the Christian? No. But they can sure, sure operate through his mind and his body. There's no question in my mind, homosexuality, give, yielding to the desires of the flesh and homosexuality can open the door to demonic possession or to, to demonization. Let me say it that way. I've seen some, talk to some, uh, some people that were homosexuals and, and they're just as clear as can be. Their spirit is as clear and as open as can be. They're searching for God. They're searching for the truth. They're just uh, bound by the desires of the flesh. But I've seen other people and looked into their eyes and there's a darkness there and, and you can see that there's an evil spirit that's got a hold. I'm reminded of a story that uh, Brother Hagen told. Excuse me. Sneezes back. Oh, praise the Lord. There's all kinds of things you got to do when you're wearing a microphone. Uh, Brother Hagin told a story about his son-in-law, Buddy Harrison. And at uh, a certain point, uh, Buddy and Pat were, were already married. Pat was uh, Brother Hagin's daughter. They were already married, but, but he said that, and I, I never knew Buddy at this point in time. This was before my day. But he said Buddy was the most unstable person you ever saw. He said, I'd come back from crusades and Buddy would blow cigar smoke in my face and all this kind of stuff. Just do things just to try to rile him up and, and, uh, and that type of thing. And he said that uh, 
that Buddy wouldn't keep a job. He kept going from one job to the next job and, and this kind of stuff. Now, Buddy was Christian, been saved and grew up in church and, and uh, had a real call of God on his life. But he, he wouldn't yield to it, wouldn't, wouldn't give into it at all and, and, uh, and so forth. And so uh, Buddy and Pat ran off to get married. It wasn't something that, uh, that the family knew about until after the fact. And so they had a lot of things to deal with as a result of that. And, uh, and Brother Hagin said that this went on for year after year after year. And um, uh, he said one day he was praying and the Lord spoke to him. And uh, he kind of had a little short vision, quick vision there. And he said, I saw that there were three evil spirits. And and the Lord told him, he said, there are three spirits that dogged Buddy. Now, he didn't see these spirits in him or on him, but they were like little puppies that followed him around. And he said, one of them would take the lead and lead Buddy off to the right. And then after a ways, another one would take the lead and lead Buddy off to the left. And then after a ways, another one would jump out in front and take the lead and lead him down a different way or whatever. And so the Lord told him, told Brother Hagin, he said, I want you to take authority over those evil spirits and command them to leave him. Now, you can well understand that this is not something Brother Hagin initiated on his own. This was something that the Holy Ghost is, uh, is doing and, and, and brought a, a special revelation for him to even know what's going on. And so anyway, Brother Hagin had very little experience with uh, evil spirits or anything at that time. So he said, but he's down in Texas and I'm here in a different state and stuff. And so the Lord told him, he said, well, in the spirit, there's no time or distance. So what you tell him to do here will work down there. So the Lord told him, he said, now I want you to cast these uh, or to take authority over these evil spirits and command them to leave him. Not cast them out of him, but command them to leave him. And he said, uh, he said uh, after this point, Buddy will get a new job. He'll keep that job, and that'll be the last work that he does until he yields to the ministry that I've got for him. Well, it worked out just the way Brother Hagin said the Lord told him it would. And it, um, the job that he got was a, um, a better-paying job than he had had uh, doing anything else, and he stayed with it for about a year. And then he left that job, much to the, the dismay of his boss. His boss wanted to move him up to be a manager of, you know, uh, and, and move him on into the company and stuff, but Buddy left to go lead worship at a church in, in uh, Minnesota for $100 a week. And the boss couldn't understand. He said, I cannot believe that this guy is turning down this, this job and the position and promotion and so forth for, for that, kind of, that little amount of money. But God had a plan for him. Well, I got to thinking about that. I can't tell you how many times I've thought about that over the years. Because there are times and situations where I've wondered with people in the church because I've, I've prayed with them, I've seen them cry, I've, they've hugged my neck and cried on my shoulder about how sorry they were for the things that they'd gotten in and about how they disappointed God and how they wanted to turn their life around. But then two weeks later, they're right back in the same boat. And I knew they were sincere. I knew that they were sincere about, uh, about repentance. I knew they were sincere about wanting to follow God and want to do what God had for them in their life. But somehow or another, they just didn't have something. There was something missing that held them steady. And caused him to stick. Well, there was one situation, that, well, this situation, that I was uh, thinking about this, uh, this thing with Buddy. And I said, well, Lord, if you, and, and my position had always been, if you'd show me with people that I'm dealing with, I'd do the same thing that Brother Hagin did. And I, in this situation, I just kind of got fed up with it and kind of, I don't want to say mad at the Lord, but kind of. Just being honest. And so I said, Lord, why don't you show me this stuff? If you'd show me the stuff, that I'd do it. And then finally I just said, well, I don't care if you've shown me or not. I just take authority over this evil spirit that's keeping him bound in the name of Jesus, and that's it. Well, lo and behold, it worked. 
And I've got to tell you, I'm the most surprised person in town. Because I'm thinking that I've got to have something here and I've got to, I've got to be able to see something and I've got, to, I've got to have some kind of knowledge. And the fact that, the, and looking back at it, the fact that the Lord brought my, my remembrance or to my remembrance, that story with Buddy, that may have been the Lord showing me. Now, on the flip side, I've tried it in other situations just because I wanted to make it work. Not so much. But that was one that somehow or another had something extra. I wonder how many people are bound by the operating of evil spirits in the modern day church. Now, now folks, you've got to realize, in the book of Acts, when you got saved, it had to mean something. Especially if you were a Jew. If you were a Jew and you got saved, your family disowned you. I mean, it was, ser- it was a serious decision. Even as far as the Greeks were concerned, the, the, uh, the Romans were persecuting the church. So if you claimed to be a Christian, you could wind up heading to the Colosseum to be tomorrow afternoon's entertainment. So there were some serious, serious issues that the modern-day church doesn't have to think about. Modern-day church worries about how much money am I going to have by the end of the month. Have you noticed things are starting to change? Have you noticed cities now are even starting to step up and demand certain things of churches? Do you see this thing that happened in Houston? Where this lesbian mayor uh, sent out this directive for all the pastors to send in their sermon notes and stuff that has to do with the city? Folks, I got to tell you, I don't use sermon notes, but I would have written one for that. I'd love to find out city officials want my sermon notes. (laughs) Look at what's going on in the country around us. Now people are starting to make excuses for why radical Islam, I I hate that term, radical Islam. Islam is radical. Make no, you're welcome. Make no mistake about this. The moderate Muslims, and I'm sure there are a lot of peace-loving Muslims out there, maybe the majority of Muslims are peace-loving, but the fact of the matter is, These ISIS and jihadist groups, they are true followers of Islam. They're doing what the Quran says to do. And anybody that makes an excuse otherwise either counts on you being a fool or they're a fool themselves. So there is no such thing as radical Islam. There are Islamic, uh, there are Muslims who don't follow the Quran, just like there are Christians who don't follow the Bible. But the Quran says to do all the stuff that ISIS is doing. Well, look at what a foothold that's starting to gain in our country and in our world. You know why? Because nobody's stepping up and doing anything about it. It'll get worse and worse. Right now, the only group that you can legally persecute, politically acceptable to persecute, is the church. And that is going to get worse and worse and worse. I would submit to you folks that there's never been a greater time for you to know the power that's in the name of Jesus. I would submit to you that there's never a time where it's more important to be free from the devil's power Quit stepping around the edges of stuff. Quit opening doors to your flesh to let the devil have a foothold. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Shall not prevail against the name of Jesus. You can be free. You better exercise that right. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you, Father, that those who are free set free by you and set free by the power of the name of Jesus are free indeed. Lord, open our eyes to the things that we need to set aside. 
The Bible instructs us to lay aside every weight and every sin which does so easily beset us. Not everything's a sin, Lord, but there are things that will hold us back from fellowship with you, from walking with you. Holy Spirit, show us what those things are. And work on our hearts so that we're willing to set those things aside. Father, if it takes persecution for the church to wake, to awaken, then let it come. If it takes hard places for the church to step up and be the church, then let those come too. Because our desire is not comfort. Our desire is not ease. Our desire is not plenty. Our desire is to have the power of the name of Jesus known. We know, Father, that as we walk according to your word and walk in your will, you'll take care of us. You'll see to meeting our needs. You'll bring us to a place where our joy is full. But, Lord, more than anything else, we pray that the glory of God and the power in the name of Jesus would be seen and known. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.